Our Father, we're thankful again that you have brought us to yourself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to some of that which was involved in the Incarnation, the implications of what we can see of you through the Incarnation, and realize that that great act was probably one of the most profound acts in the history of the cosmos, of the Creator becoming in union with a creature and in one person. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts to these details that are humanly impossible to grasp in any comprehensive way, and yet which also uh, radiate out from the text of the Scriptures. So therefore, whereas we know that we cannot comprehend them in the energy of the flesh, and indeed even filling of the Holy Spirit because we are limited as creatures, nevertheless, you seem to want us to know more of you and for us to be challenged by this revelation. And we thank you that we can come to you tonight through the person of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, last time we, we continued working with the biblical material on the Trinity. And um, we went through some of the texts in the Old Testament. And we concluded with two major Old Testament passages. And those passages were Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 60. So let's turn back to Isaiah 48 uh, once again to uh, recall that the Trinity is indeed present in the Old Testament. Not in any complete way, but the evidence that the New Testament is somehow, it, it folds in and links with the Old Testament. The two Testaments are not in conflict. And in Isaiah 48.16, we have this classic reference. And we really ought to know this and have it handy, not forget it. Um, in Isaiah 48:16, Come near to me and listen to this. Now, the subject, you have to trace the subject of the verb and the objects of the verb. Now, who's the subject of the verb, come, listen to me? In other words, it's an imperative uh, voice, imperative mood and it's spoken by whoever is speaking in the context. And in the context, you have to back up to verse 15, to verse 14, to verse 13, and verse 12. The same speaker in verse 12 and 13 is the same one speaking in verse 16. So, who is speaking in verses 12 and 13? It's clearly Jehovah. It's clearly the Lord that's speaking. I mean, who else founded the earth? So, if it's the Lord speaking in verse 12, it must be the Lord speaking in verse 16. But if it's the Lord speaking in verse 16, now look what happens. Come near to me, which would be the Lord, and listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now, and see, and here's the mystery text. And now, the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. Now, reading backwards from the New Testament, the advantage we have of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit clearly revealed in the New Testament, can you identify the persons of the Trinity in the nouns and pronouns of verse 16? Well, obviously, the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. And that last clause has the three. So, the Spirit will be the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, who is the Lord God and me in the Trinity? Me would be the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's the second person. So, you have the first person, you have the second person, 
And you have the third person in verse 16. So, it's not like the Old Testament has two, has four, has eight, it has three. I mean, that's quite a profound thing to say in the Old Testament text. And then, we showed the other passage uh, was in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22. And in Isaiah 60, verse 22, the smallest will become a clan, the least will become a mighty, and I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time in the context of this whole passage of Isaiah 60, going backwards and so on. It's clearly one that the Lord is speaking. And because it's the Lord speaking, and yet He speaks throughout this whole Isaiah 60, He speaks all the way back in Isaiah 59, this whole passage is filled with this kind of triune um, nature of God. Now, one of the things that the Lord will hasten, the work of my hands and so on, the Lord will hasten it in its time. If you look back, further on, back up in that uh, Isaiah 60 passage, you'll see that Isaiah chapter 60 flows out of this 59, this Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 59. And when that chapter 6 starts that concludes from verses 1 to 22. It's introduced in the end of Isaiah 59 where it says, says the Lord, My spirit is upon you. My words have I put in your mouth. There, and my covenant is with them, my spirit, my words. And you remember last time we said how much, how often in the Old Testament the... um, word that comes to the prophet, we think of that retroactively as just kind of inspiration comes to the prophets. But the, the, the phraseology is, is stronger in the original language than just inspiration coming to a prophet. It's the word comes to the prophet. And we showed how that's the origin of the word that the Apostle John picks up. So we have then these passages in the Old Testament where you see this triunity, the spirit the word that comes and the Lord comes and then you have this anointing, the anointed one who also appears. Now, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, let's watch how the Lord Jesus picks up and uses these, these kinds of passages. Luke chapter 4, verse Now, what he's going to do is he is going to start with a passage that immediately follows Isaiah 60, verse 22, that whole passage where it's kind of pregnant with a trinity. And here's where Jesus gets up in the synagogue, verse 16. He came to Nazareth, he'd been brought up. This is a hometown, a little local church in his hometown now. He enters the synagogue and he stood up to read. Now, standing up to read... Um, men in the, in the synagogue would take the Torah, the ones who could read it, because not all people were literate, remember, and everybody else usually memorized it. So whoever could read would take the Torah, and the, the synagogue leader would unroll it, and they'd start reading it. Well, now, let's think about that. This is Luke. What's the scripture that's being read? The Old Testament or the New Testament? Well, it has to be the Old Testament, because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. 
So the scroll that he's unrolling is the Old Testament. And he picks out, it says in verse 17, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. In other words, that was the reading. Apparently, maybe they didn't have all the scrolls. Maybe they just had his Isaiah scroll. But they handed him the scroll. So he opened it, and he found the place where it was written. Uh, if you wanted to be a dramatist, you could dramatize unrolling the scroll. It took time. And he had to read it and had to look where it was because Isaiah is a long book and he had to unroll the whole book and, and to get to this 60th chapter. Now look what he does. Now hold the place here and flip back to Isaiah 60, verse 22. In Isaiah 60, verse 22, it comes at the end of this passage. We talked about the Word, the Lord, and the Spirit. Now, at the very end of verse 22, it says, I, the Lord, will hasten all this in its time. Then, in Isaiah 61, notice what happens. The speaker, verse 22, of Isaiah 60 is whom? It's God. It's not man. It's not Isaiah. It's the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, which is, there's the word gospel, to the afflicted. He has sent me and so forth and so forth and so on. Now, there's a number of things about that passage we want to look at, but notice first, very simply, let's just do an observation. Who's the speaker? The Lord is the speaker. Therefore, the pronoun me in the first clause, the antecedent of the pronoun must be the Lord. The Lord's talking, and he's talking about me. So, it's, he is the me, but yet it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So, then it says in the next clause, because the Lord has anointed me. And by the way, the word anoint, Masah, is a Hebrew word for Masah, Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. So, we would say, because the Lord has made him Christ. So, in this passage even more powerfully than Isaiah 48, you have the Trinity implicated in the Messiah and who the Messiah is. Because verse 22, the Lord is speaking, but then he is said to be the object of the verb anoint. Because how else are you going to look at that second clause? The subject of the verb anoint is whom? Of the Trinity, do you think? The Father. Okay? So the Father anoints the Son. Well, the me, then, is the son. And the me is the one who's speaking in verse 22 and has been speaking all through chapter 60. Now, now why, you, you want to grab this because of the drama that's about to unfold here in the New Testament. In Isaiah 61, let's, let's work through that verse just to get a little, uh, verses 1 and 2, just to get a little background what's going to happen when the Lord opens the scroll and starts to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has christened me or made me Messiah to bring the gospel to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion. Now, remember back, we, we talked about evil and the fall, and we talked about that the Christian faith... Uh, is the only faith that has a solution to the problem of evil. Now, here is a typical prophetic passage in the Old Testament. Gosh, you can read that better here and you can... Um, 
if I'm not blocking it. Um, you can see in this diagram we keep showing that good and evil in the Christian worldview last only for a duration. It's not like the pagan who has to have good and evil forever in the past and in the future, eternity past, eternity future. There is no stopping of one or the other. They both coexist forever and ever and ever. In the Christian worldview, there was a period of time between creation and the fall when only good prevailed. So the physical universe is conceivable in a biblical worldview to be good. But then you have the fall, and now you have to have a resolution of this. Because God doesn't become evil. God remains good forever. He's immutable. Well, if he's going to remain immutable, and he's holy and he's just, and you've got his creation here mixed, I mean, it sets up a tension. And that tension has to be resolved. And it's resolved here in the final judgment when good and evil are separated forever and ever. That's why when we studied the prophets last year, remember we kept saying the prophets looked forward, remember we got into eschatology and so on, the kingdom of God, and that had, there had to be a resolution. The Bible doesn't leave things in a mess. It points to the future. Now, the prophets would bring that mix. They would talk about God's blessing, that is, this blessing here, but they would never talk about that blessing without also talking about the judgment upon evil. The two go together. Now, look at the construction of this passage. In verse 2, what is the Messiah doing? He's proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord and what? And the day of vengeance. You see the two go together? The gospel is the good news, verse 1. But together with the good news, the prophets also include the bad news. There's good news and there's bad news. The good news of the blessing, the bad news is that people are going to be judged. Not everybody's going to respond to the gospel. So, whether they respond or not, there's got to be resolution of evil and there's got to be a day of vengeance and there's got to be a day when the mess is cleaned up. Alright, that's that's typical prophetic uh, thing. That's how the prophets would speak over and over and over again. Now, come back to Luke 4 and watch what Jesus does with this. Here he gets up in the synagogue. He starts to unroll the scroll he notices that Isaiah said he knew for well that that's what the passage was he wanted to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. What didn't he say? He left off the judgment. Now, that's interesting. Because you see... We get into this um, in the next chapter when we get to the life of Christ. He pulled this several times in his ministry where he would utilize Old Testament imagery. He'd get right up to an edge and then he'd stop. And one of the comforting things about that is it shows you that the Lord Jesus Christ was very, very precise in his use of the text of Scripture. It wasn't flopping all over the place, making things up and saying, gee, I think that means this, or I think it means that. He said what it did mean. Every verse, every verb, every noun, and every pronoun has a meaning and a purpose. And that's called exegesis of the text. Jesus Christ came into that Old Testament text. He knew very well that in the prophets, the good and the evil were put together to show the complete picture. 
But why do you suppose he doesn't bring up, I have come to proclaim the day of judgment? Because it wasn't. It was a day of grace. The Lord Jesus came to Israel. He came to his own and his own received him not. But John says he came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, people can get a false image of that if they don't really know the Old Testament. See, you can get a sort of a, a, a meek, um, sloppy, gooey picture of Jesus out of that by saying, well, gee, he was just, you know, he was a nice guy. God of the Old Testament's a bad guy. Well, he is the God of the Old Testament. What's happening is he's selecting out of the plan of God a particular part of the plan of God, which was the offer of the gospel to Israel. And this is, this is what he was doing. This is the dispensation of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to Israel and offering the gospel. He's not coming in judgment. Well, but that doesn't mean he's not going to come in judgment. It means that at that point in his career, that was the issue. And that's why in the Gospels, they start off with him going to the crowds, going to the large group, and then as, the, as he is rejected progressively, you'll notice the Lord retracts. Now he starts talking in code. Now it's the parables. And he doesn't speak plainly anymore. He speaks in this code of the, all the parables. And it's directed to the disciples. And it's as though he contracts his teaching down. The class suddenly gets smaller now. And he's, but he's going deeper. Because he's preparing those guys for what he knows is coming. Now he starts to talk about the cross. Now he talks about the judgment. Now he talks about an age yet to come, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He talks about all these new themes halfway through the Gospels. But in Luke 4, he's not halfway through yet. In Luke 4, he's still making this announcement to the people. Now look at the context in Luke 4, what happens. Verse 20. He blew them away. Here's hometown boy now. This is the guy that, you know, worked in the carpenter shop 800 feet up the road. And he had the audacity to open up the scroll of Isaiah and say, he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. What a dramatic moment this must have been. And he began to say to them, and by the way, this, new tran- this translation I'm following correctly captures the Greek. He began to say to them, now, there's a way the Greek language distinguishes between he said to them and he began to say to them. Now, what do you suppose that little structure is doing there? If you had to reconstruct the scene, why do you suppose the text reads he began to say something to them? Not he said, but he began. If the text just said, and he said to them, dun, 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 that's fine. I mean, we could follow the thing. But there's a little detail in there. He began, he started to say to them, why would you, if you were telling a story, would you tell it that way? He started to say to them. Well, obviously, because he didn't finish saying. What happened? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your, he- in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were flying from his lips. And they were saying, and see, this is a continuous thing. So now they're saying back, is this not Joseph's son? So the idea is that this, he starts to say, to explain the text, after he sits down. See, he's read it, and he didn't explain the text up, up when he was up in front reading. He sat down, and then he said, as he folded his hands, sat down and said, this text is fulfilled before you now. And, and the other thing that they were all speaking of, meaning that there was a buzz going on. 
I mean, this broke up the service here. There was a lot of discussion going on. They, were kept, they kept going and people talking and leaning over, talking to the other person. And all this was going on, wondering at the words which were falling from his lips. And they said, it's not Joseph's son. He said to them, no doubt you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elisha, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elisha was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Zidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time. By the way, this is a classic passage for why Jesus Christ didn't heal everybody and why he doesn't do miracles for everybody. And he's, he's clearly saying, I didn't, you know, this, this is not the way God works. There were many widows in Israel. I mean, there were a lot of poor widows in Israel. And they all didn't get blessed. Not this name it and claim it business floats around from time to time. I say to you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elisha when the sky was shut up. There was a great famine. Elisha was sent to none of them. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. None of them were cleansed, only Nahum. And all the synagogue was filled with rage as they heard these things. Now, you talk about a church that just got busted. Can you imagine this? What do you suppose is going on here? He he lived with these people. These are his neighbors, Joseph and Mary's neighbors. So he knows all about them, and they think it's great when it starts off. But then in verse 23, 24, 25, it appears that he directed that back against the criticism that was being directed to him. Clearly, it doesn't make sense that he suddenly lashes out at a group of people in verse 23, 24, and 25 with no reason. It must be a reason why he said what he did here. And apparently what was going on was these people were saying to him, well, look, little fellow, everything's so great. How come you don't pull off some of your stunts around here? And he knew that. He knew that was on their mind. So in spite of the fact in verse 22, it says these people were, you know, making the proper clucking noises, sounded nice, Jesus read their hearts. (laughs) You people doubt me. You don't believe what I just told you. And let me go ahead and I'll address the thoughts that you're not even voicing right now. Because you see, it says in verse 21, he started to say to them, and they were all speaking, and the, the, the thrust of the text seems to be that he started to explain more fully what that text was doing, and then immediately he watched the response going on. So he stopped that mode of thought and switched. And then he began to address the problem that the people have. And this was what I think so angered people about Jesus, is that instead of going along with the fact of becoming defensive, that they would accuse him of not being clear, They would accuse him of not doing a miracle so we too can see. I mean, we've heard these things over in Capernaum, but you haven't done anything lately for us. In other words, instead of accepting that passively, what he in fact did was he went right after it, the root of unbelief. And that's when the Lord gets annoying. He butts into our business. He doesn't just, you know, stand out in the closet in the cold. And we come to him with all this polite language. Verse 22, everybody's speaking well of him. Ooh, sounds great. And in fact, it wasn't great. It was just a cover for a lot of reeking unbelief that was going on throughout the whole congregation. He just said, okay, I, I, you know, I can read your minds. Now let me just tell you about your own hearts. 
boom, 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 boom. And he got a, he got a response. Uh, look at verse 20 and 29. All this because of a text out of Isaiah. But see, the text in Isaiah, who was speaking the text? Jehovah was speaking the text. These people are Jewish. They clearly caught it. They knew enough about their Old Testament to know this arrogant young man getting up and identifying himself with the figure of Isaiah 60 and 61, who they knew clearly that figure, be it Christ the Messiah or not, that figure was clearly Jehovah. So from their perspective, here's a guy that's blaspheming. And this is exactly, people, what C.S. Lewis said over and over again, that in effect, Jesus Christ doesn't permit you to conceive of him as a good teacher. He is either a blasphemer or he is who he claimed to be. But you can't come up with so this, what C.S. Lewis called patronizing nonsense that says that he's a nice, good teacher. Like Harry Emerson Fosdick, the guy that we read earlier about the modernists. Oh, the manhood of the master. Not any manhood of the master here. This is the God-man. And if you don't like it, then call him a blasphemer. But stop gooing around with anything you could teach And the Lord doesn't permit you to do that. So they rose up and they cast him out of the city. They led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built. Nazareth is high. It's high up. In order to throw him down the cliff. But he went through them. And that's one of those mystery texts, verse 30. Well, how do you do that? I don't know. He walked through them somehow. Whether he glared at them and they just kind of backed away. Or what happened? What exchange went on there that Luke just doesn't really give us a clue about what happened? Just the result of it. So, we can sit back and, you know, look at these texts theologically and in depth and all the theory and doctrine stuff. But just keep in mind, here was an, a, an example from the street where... People who were informed biblically about Isaiah knew very well what this claim was all about. Okay, now what we want to do is come to the New Testament. If you look in your notes um, on page 8, we talk about the New Testament supporting data. Now, in the New Testament, we have lots of data about the Trinity, but we're not going to go through all that data tonight. What I want to do on pages 8 and 9, is examine the text only for the third person of the Trinity. I think we've shown enough so far about the deity of the Father, the deity of the Son, but there's a problem with the third person of the Trinity. Often in church history and in practical Christian life, the, tr- the Spirit kind of gets the short shrift here of not being given due honor. And the Holy Spirit is sometimes conceived as a vague, impersonal force rather than a full person. And that's the assertion of the Old Testament. The New Testament, of the New Testament, rather. The New Testament brings into focus the personality of the Spirit of God. That it's not just an influence of God. It is a person with all the attributes of emotion, mind and soul and so forth. The Spirit uh, can... Be, one of the problems in the text is because it's translated it. Um, and the reason why it's translated it 
that word is because it's neuter. It's not female, male or female gender. It's just neuter. So it comes across as an impersonal it. Why the Holy Spirit is translated as a neuter, I don't know. I mean, obviously there must be a theological reason for it. But in the notes on page 8, what I try to do is capture the imagery of spirit. There are two words, one in Hebrew and one in Greek, that are translated spirit. In the Old Testament, it's ruach. And in the New Testament, it's pneuma. Now, we get the word pneumonia from that. Uh, It's a word that means air associated with lungs. We still use it that way. Because spirit and breath are are the same. They come out of the same noun, same concept. So if you look at that middle paragraph on the notes, here's the concept behind the words that is used that are used for the third person of the Trinity. The general term spirit is visualized in the Bible as breath or wind, something that is active but is never seen directly. Humankind is sometimes seen as a body of water stirred up and blown by spiritual forces. Daniel 7. And what you remember an Ephesians passage, anybody without going to Ephesians? You remember what that passage says? What does it say about unstable Christians blown about by every wind of doctrine? See, that's the image. And in Daniel 7, the idea there is, and I saw uh, the, the beast rise up out of the waters. The waters were stirred. And the picture is that the water is an image of human race, the, uh, unstable. And whoosh, the wind blows upon it and, and moves it. And the, the idea in Daniel 7 and in Ephesians is there are spirits, evil spirits, blowing upon the water, moving it. And it's a a biblical view of history that we are the water and we are open at all times to spiritual influences around us. We, in our Western mind, like to think of forces in history, economic forces. We like to think of political forces. We like to think of geographical resources. This country is great because it has great geographical resources, natural resources. This country is weak because it lives in the middle of a desert. And we think in terms of these processes. And it's very shallow, frankly, because we fail to ask the next reason. What is the cause of those forces? And why is it that they are so unpredictable? No economist yet has been able to predict anything of significance. You know? If they were, they'd be billionaires. Here these guys are teaching in college campuses with all making all these pontifical pronouncements about economic forces. And you can have a simple street test to know they don't know what they're talking about. If this guy with his three doctorates in economics knew what he was talking about, he'd go to the commodities exchange or the stock market and make a mint because he could predict what's happening. Well, they don't do that, so it tells you they can't predict. They have a lot of ideas and they project them but they're not predicting it. They can't even do as well as we do in the meteorology. So, the point is that the Holy Spirit and other spirits are active all the time in history. The picture then is of wind, breath. Remember God said, I made man's body in the Garden of Eden. The picture was he made it out of the dirt of the ground. And what did God do after he finished Adam's body? He breathed into it. Doesn't that remind you of first aid? What's the CPR? 
God breathed into the nostrils of Adam. And it was a picture of breath. It's not some spooky third dimension type thing. It's, he, if you were there and had a video camera, that's what he would look like. The manifestation of God, second person, took this lump of clay, working with it, and go, and there's Adam. So the breath, the coming of the breath is a picture of the spirit. Now, associated with this is another picture, and you'll get this in Proverbs 1.23. So if you'll turn to Proverbs chapter 1, here's a classic passage that gives you this idea of relates the pneuma with speech. And I take you to Proverbs 1.23 because it's talking, talking about ordinary teaching. But it uses terminology the New Testament later uses for such uh, wondrous events as Pentecost. And because people read the New Testament, they don't read the Old, they get into Acts and they see the Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit, and they conceive of all this stuff that goes on and mystical, spooky stuff and fail to see and capture the metaphor. The language that is used to describe Pentecost is right here in Proverbs 1.23. Look how it occurs. Wisdom is speaking. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make my words known to you. Now that is called parallelism in Hebrew poetry. Clause number one is parallel in meaning to clause number two. What does clause number two say? Forget one for a moment. I will make my words known to you. What is that? That's speech. And what's the object of speech? Communication of content. Truth goes from mind number one to mind number two. I will make my words known to you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you content. Parallel to clause two is clause one. And what is clause one? I will pour out my spirit. So what is pouring out of the spirit? It's revelation of the word of God. So you have the spirit here and you have the word. That describes the relationship of the second and third persons of the Trinity. That very metaphor. Our throats, our lungs, and our larynx are built and designed by God to reveal this truth. You can't speak in a vacuum. You've got to have air. Something's got to go through the vocal cords. Got to make a move. It's the only way we make sound. So, what does God have us do? He has us breathe. He has lungs. They're pushing air through the vocal cords. It's the only way we can speak. We have fun at, at sometimes in the meteorology group where we use helium gas, the weather balloons, and guys, everyone says, well, and contrary to the Asha, you know, you're not supposed to do this. But they'll uh, breathe in helium and talk like that or something like that. And it, what it is, is just the low density gas. Uh, trying to pass through your vocal cords, and the vocal cords are vibrating like they always do, but they don't have the density, the air density in there to make the noise, proper acoustic signature. But the idea then is that the spirit is poured out. Now that means that in the human heart, we think and we have these ideas we want to express. So when we speak and we make our words known, what this text is saying, it's pouring out your spirit. That's what pouring out the spirit is. Nothing spooky about it. Pouring out the spirit is a synonym for communication, verbal communication. 
And if people just get this out of Proverbs 1.23, when they get over in Acts and they start seeing the pouring out of the Spirit, what was that? The pouring out of the Spirit was the beginning of the New Testament canon coming through the apostles and the prophets. It was a clarification, Peter's speech and so on, the preaching of the gospel in the different languages. So, again, pay attention to Old Testament texts and that sets you up to go into the New Testament. Okay, now, a little bit more now about the personality. Acts chapter 5. This is a classic text used for years by theologians to, to emphasize the personality of the Trinity. In particular, the person, full personhood of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5, verse 3, remember the incident? Ananias and his wife wanted to impress everyone how great they were at giving and went through all the stuff. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, can you lie to an it? You lie to people. Not an it. Not an influence. So this is one of the classic New Testament passages where you see the Holy Spirit presented as a full person. <clears throat> Moreover, in, in verse 4, excuse me, you have not lied to men, but to God. So not only is the full personality of the Holy Spirit given, <clears throat> but the full deity of the Holy Spirit is given in this text. Let's turn to uh, <clears throat> let's turn to Matthew twenty-eight. <clears throat> You'll notice at the bottom of page eight, I've given you a whole bunch of verses in there. If you look at those, um, they all support the personality of the Holy Spirit. Um, also, in the top of page 9 of the notes, you'll see the reference to Isaiah 6. You want to look that up because that's similar to what we just covered where um, the Holy Spirit says, and it quotes the Isaiahic text of Isaiah chapter 6. Yet, if you look in the Old Testament context, who's doing the speaking? The Lord is doing the speaking. Jehovah is doing the speaking. But in Isaiah, in the New Testament, when it's cited, it says the Holy Spirit's doing the speaking. Well, in Matthew 28:19, the baptismal formula is one of, another powerful reference of God's threeness and His triunity. And what we want to point out in, in Matthew 28:19 is that the name is singular. And that's very significant. For a Jewish mind, what is the name of Yahweh? It's very sacred. The name of Yahweh is so sacred that they lost how to pronounce it. Nobody to this day knows how the tetragrammaton is to be pronounced. We guess it must be Yahweh. But we don't know because in the Hebrew text, that's all we have. No vowels in there. The vowels have to be all supplied. So we, we wind up with this thing called the tetragrammaton. And that's considered so sacred, nobody would pronounce it for centuries. Because nobody did pronounce it for centuries, they forgot how to pronounce it. 
and the vowels dropped out and were lost. Okay, now, in this passage, in the light of all that, now let's look at verse 19 of Matthew. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. What you have to think about here in in verse 19 is that everything that follows that noun, name, in the rest of that clause of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all that is a new revelation of what the name of God is. See, it's not just as as simple, straightforward as it would seem to to the casual reader. To someone who knew his Old Testament well, this is an expositing the name of Jehovah. The name of Jehovah is now the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A, A tremendous, powerful revelation of the Trinity here in the baptismal formula. Then there's one other passage, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that we often use in our church services. And it is a third classic reference where the Trinity in the New Testament occurs in a mature way. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And you've all heard this probably dozens and dozens of times at the end of church services. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There is the, the triunity of God is distinguished by what they do. Here is where the role comes in. And in the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, there are two terms that are used uh, by students of, of this doctrine. And one is called the ontological trinity and the other is called the economic trinity. Now, that's not talking about Alan Greenspan. That's talking about the difference between God in his existence and being. The ontological trinity is conceived of the trinity before creation. No plan of, sal- no plan of salvation being executed, no fall, Uh, visible, just God. In that situation, you have the ontological trinity. The economic trinity is a description of how the trinity work in the plan of salvation. And in 2 Corinthians 13, the qualifications that are introduced in that benediction refer to the economic trinity, watching the trinity doing things and in particular, doing things in the plan of salvation. Notice what is ascribed to each of the three persons. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes to central focus in the person of the Son. The love of God. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. So the Father's love is grace too, but the idea is that the love motivates. He's behind the plan. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that brings it to to us as individuals. Always glorifying Jesus Christ. Never drawing attention to Himself. Uh, That's why the Holy Spirit doctrine is so difficult. Because He doesn't ever make Himself an issue. He makes the Lord the issue. And it's a model of how what we should be doing. So, there's the Trinity. There's the Old Testament and New Testament evidences. And what we want to do in conclusion is, if you'll follow the notes, on page 9 and 10, I'm going to show you how the Trinity
centuries of thought, and they are not casual. These words are not casual. The Nicene Creed is usually, as usually recited in Western churches. Now, look at the titles now. Now we're not focusing so much on the deity of Christ as the whole trinity itself. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. So see, there's the first person. First person is put first. <laughs> in the Don, except the silly one that we have in our hymn book where he's the second order. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, and there's a strong deity. See, they're using every way those poor people that wrote that Nicene Creed, they're trying to get away from Arianism. So they're doing everything they can. But I want to draw your attention to one phrase in there that happens. Underline the little phrase, begotten, not made. Because every heretic in church history camps on the word begotten. And what would you suppose heretics do with that word? Make Jesus created, right? He'd be begotten. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Why did the, why did the fathers put begotten in the creed then if it caused so much problems? They had a reason. Begotten, not made. They had to put that not made on there so that that would knock out the false idea that begetting means he was made. So they had to put that in there to correct it. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things are made. So they elevate, that last clause elevates the Lord Jesus Christ to what role? Makes him the what of the universe? The creator of the universe. Now look what they do with the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. The Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Now, the key word to underline there that has caused problems down through history is proceedeth. And you'll note in brackets, and the Son. That's that filet clause that we spoke of earlier. That's the clause that separated the Eastern Church from the Western Church. That's the clause that made Russian Orthodox Church the forerunner of communism. Because what it did was it demeaned without the, and the Son. Now you have the Holy Spirit sent from the Father. The Son has nothing to do with it. The Son is a sort of minor person of the Trinity. And wherever Jesus Christ is small, what expands to fill its place? The state. So in societies where you have a weak Christology, and Russian Orthodox Church has always had a weak Christology, the Greek Orthodox Church has had a weak Christology, because they've all dropped out this filiquet clause. So these little brackets and so on, this is really has a lot of implications. Our verse t- uh, in the, let's turn over to the next chapter. An article one of the Episcopalian Creed, the Anglican Church. Uh, the Anglican Church Creed shows Reformation thinking because Henry, while he was trying to mess around with all of his wives, he did one good thing. He decided that he didn't know what he was doing in the church, so he sent down to Geneva and got some people to come from Geneva up there and give some theology to the Church of England. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker, preserver of all things, both visible and invisible, and in the unity of this Godhead there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's another great creed trying to come to grips with the doctrine of the Trinity. Now the Westminster Confession of Faith, probably one of the most debated uh, and refined creeds. We wouldn't agree with everything in the Westminster Confession of Faith, particularly its eschatology. 
But on the other hand, it is a very powerful thing. You remember that when you hear Tom Brokaw on NBC at Princess Diana's funeral looking down the corridors of Westminster Cathedral and saying, ah, there's never been something like this in Westminster Cathedral before, Princess Diana's funeral. Excuse me? This was what was great at Westminster, not Princess Diana. This was ironed out by the Puritans. This was ironed out by people who were biblically literate. And, and it, it, was, it was the grand high level of Westminster that this came out. There is but one an only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none. Notice what they've done here in the Westminster Confession of Faith. See, here they're trying to get at those words, proceedeth and begotten. The Father is of none neither begotten, not proceeding. So what they're trying to say there is neither begotten distinguishes him from which person? The Son. So neither begotten distinguishes the Father from the Son, not proceeding distinguishes him from the Spirit. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now there they qualify themselves. Now watch it. See, begotten there in context is not talking about a point event that Jesus originated at a certain point. It's he's eternally begotten. It's it's always going on, whatever this is. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. In other words, the structure, going back to this, are they referring to the economic or are they referring to the ontological trinity here when they use the word eternal? They're using the ontological trinity. In other words, what they're attempting to do here is to attribute the triune distinguishing aspects of the Trinity that existed forever and ever and immutable. They don't change in the Old Testament. They don't change in the New Testament. If we could take a time machine before creation, they'd still be true there. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have never changed their relationship and their structure. What we observe in the plan of salvation is but an instant of this eternally abiding character. Now what I've tried to do is take five propositions on page 10 and 11 and 11 got cut off, so I have to give you the last sentence on 11, Calvin's quote. Um, we don't have time tonight to go through all these, so I'll just start with one. Because um, we can get through one, we'll, we can get through the other four pretty, pretty well. God is absolutely one. What I try to do is show... I remember in the Q&A one night, we asked a question about the egg, and I had said something about theologians that laid an egg when they came up with that illustration. Um, It's not that it's a super bad illustration. It's just that that illustration doesn't really illustrate these five propositions. And we're going to get into an illustration that does do it in the notes. But what we want to see is, whatever illustration you come up with, the Trinity, I mean, you're free to come up with this many analogies out there. But just be sure that you're thinking in terms of these five truths because if you don't, you're going to get an imbalance here. When we, we start to get into the Trinity. All right, the first one is God is absolutely one. God cannot be divided into parts. He is not a divine being who can be described, as pagan thought tries to do, by prior categories. Underline the word prior. Prior categories or attributes. What I'm getting at there is the idea that you have this, uh, this idea of goodness. 
this idea of, of eternity, the idea of holiness. And then God fits into that category. The category is kind of there like a yardstick, and then God comes along and we measure him with it. Can't do that. That's a pagan way of thinking. What we have to do, what we're challenged to do by Scripture, is to reverse the process and say it's God's character that establishes the yardstick. Righteousness, in the final analysis, is not an it or a category, some Aristotelian category. Righteousness is what God is like. That's the highest. That's the most complete. That's the most deep exposition of righteousness. What He's like. Love is not a quality or an attribute like Aristotle conceived of it. And then God happens to have that quality. It's rather that God's character sets up the category. The categories follow God. Not God following the categories. And I make that because now when we get into the Trinity, we're going to deal with oneness and threeness. And see what happens? The pagan thinks of a oneness and a threeness in mathematical terms. He's got his number system. And then he says, how do we explain God in terms of the number system? Whereas what we should do is turn this whole thing around this way and say, the reason we have numbers is because God's character is that way. He's the ground of the number. Not trying to understand him in terms of numbers that are abstract and we fit dogs, cats, rocks, atoms, um, pounds of you know, force, and then also God. They all happen to be clustered under this category. It's not the way to think. That's the continuity of being idea, this pagan thought. The Bible says that God sets up the qualities. He radiates those qualities, just like the rainbow. Where does red come from? Red is, is, comes to us from the rainbow. All right. If it, Isaiah 40:25 is a passage in the Old Testament that says, Who will you liken me to? God challenges us. He says, Name a category that will measure me. So that's a very important verse. It clearly denies that there is any such prior category to which God can be likened or classified. Any such categories comprehended by man are qualities, Q, little Q, that themselves derive from the Creator. Our sense of geometry and space derive from His omnipresence. Our sense of time derives from His eternality. His attributes, therefore, are not impersonal ideals thought by men. They are qualities of His personal character. God is each one of these characteristics entirely. All of God is involved in righteousness. All of God is involved in justice. What I'm trying to say there is avoid the pie chart concept. You know, you look at a pie chart and it's all slices and here's love, here's... No, 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 no. Wrong picture. Because that would imply there are parts of God that aren't righteous. And then over here he's righteous, here he's love, but here, you know... That's, it gets too fouled up to do it that way. The only way we can handle this is to make all of him righteous. All of him is loving. All of him is holy. There's no conflict between them. So however we define holiness, for example, and love, we've got to remember that they eternally coexist in the character of God without conflict. So we don't understand how all that happens, but we know that it happens, as a matter of fact. So, when we come to God as absolutely one, he's not divided into parts, including the fact the very idea of unity comes out of God. We're going to get into the threeness uh, tomorrow, but uh, next week. Oh, no, not, not next week. We don't have a class next week, so it will be two weeks because of the play.
I'm right, am I? Not just play is next week? Oh, it's not next week. So we're, okay, okay, that's gotten you sweating. Huh? Um, <laughs> all right, no, the drama's not next week. I, it keeps getting bigger and bigger here, so I keep thinking it's got to be soon. Um, it's sort of like the second advent. It just you know, has these preliminary signs. Um, so we will meet next week. And I want to go through uh, all of those five propositions. And if you look ahead in the notes, um, try to, if you have a moment, if you would read on pages 12 and 13. I've taken Dr. Nathan R. Wood's example of the, of the Trinity. And it's very challenging to work through that. But if you can grasp it, it will help you understand these five propositions uh, and keeping them in balance. Because later on, we'll deal with how this comes out in the issue of prayer. When we pray, who do we pray to? And I'll show you that if you pray to the Lord Jesus, obviously people talk to Jesus when He was incarnate in eternity, but when you back up prayer so that it's not directed to the Father in the name of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you move it out one, so now it's to the Son, now you've got an intercessory allocated, has moved from the Son over to the Spirit, and you need something else out here. And historically, you know what the something else was? It was Mary. So, you've got to watch it. There are certain things that fall out of this. Mary becomes the, the fourth person of the Trinity. Why is that? Because we've made Christ so unapproachable that He is the one now to which we're going, not the Father. And if we go to Him, now who's the intercessor? But if we go to the Father in the name of the Son, the Son is the intercessor. So I don't need Mary. I've got the Son. So there are some practical things, even in what we would think is just simple, normal, everyday prayer, that flow out of this Trinity. And that's why these guys were so concerned when they did the Nicene Creed and they did the Westminster Confession. I mean, these guys put a lot of time into it. They weren't just playing theological games because they realized they were, if they didn't get it right, this house wasn't going to stand on the foundation. It was wobbly. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you have condescended to give us revelation concerning your character. And we thank you for the salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus. And we ask that through the Holy Spirit we might come to a greater and greater appreciation for what you've done on our behalf. Amen. Oops, we have a question from the front tonight. So she's going to get ahead of you, Deb. <laughs> I, get, I have these dilemmas when I'm teaching my children and I'm supposed to come up with these answers. I come here and ask you. Um, why in the world did Jesus have, have to be baptized? I never understood that. And to this day, I have a terrible time trying to explain it to anybody. Why, what, was, what was it that he was fulfilling being baptized? Oh, there was um, baptism was a form, was actually almost like a, uh, a surrogate anointing in the Old Testament. I mean, Christ's name is, is the Anointed One. And who did the baptizing was John, and it was very significant because in the Old Testament, the kings, the legitimate kings, were picked out by the prophets and anointed. So you have a tradition of Samuel. Oh, the question is, why was Jesus baptized? Um, you have the tradition of Samuel 
anointing Saul, Samuel anointing David, um, several of the other prophets anointed their kings. The prophetic kingmakers were a powerful force because the king was, wasn't, he had to have popular background in the Old Testament. I mean, he had, to have a, he had to be a candidate, a viable candidate, so to speak, so that he had credibility with the people. But that really wasn't the source. And the Bible argues, it, it, all during those, the, the books like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and not so much Chronicles, but the Kings and Samuel books, are statements to control the structure of the monarchy and make it very clear that there had to be an anointing chosen by God. So that's why at the baptism of Jesus, there's, there's a context of things going on there. First, John is doing it. It's John's baptism. Then, upon the baptism of Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven and the dove appears. So there's your trinity again. Um, the baptism of Jesus is not for sin. Um, there are baptisms... There's, there's six or seven baptisms in Scripture, some dry, some wet. Um, the word baptizo doesn't mean dump in water, necessarily. Um, there's a baptism of Noah, as mentioned. There's a baptism of fire, that's very dry. Uh, there's a, the water baptism of the church, John's baptism, Jesus' modification of John's baptism that you're talking about, a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Yeah. John's John's baptism was a baptism of cleansing. Jews used baptism for cleansing, and it was the idea that I confess my sin in anticipation of the coming of the kingdom of God, and so it was preparatory to the kingdom. But when Jesus came, he sort of how what's the word I'm trying to think of? of um, what is it when you capture something and take it over. Um, he, he grabbed hold of John's baptism. What? Yeah. He, Jesus appropriated John's baptism for a purpose higher than what John was used to. It was a special act, never to be repeated again, a unique event. And it was a way the New Testament has of showing patterns. Um, the New Testament has a pattern structure to it that you only appreciate if you've read the Old Testament. And that's why all four Gospels, all four of the Gospels, start with John the Baptist. I mean, Jesus is spoken of as genealogies, but there's that sequence. John's always there. Well, why does it start with John? Because he's the prophet. He's the bridge prophet between the Old and the New Testament. So, the baptism of Jesus has all this... It's basically for his humanity... It's to emphasize his messiahship and it's his official calling and inauguration. Now, the problem with John's baptism that you get into in church history has been that the heretics said that was when the Spirit of Christ came upon the man, Jesus. And it's not true. Jesus was as much God when he was an 11-year-old boy as he was when he was 21. Well, I mean, obviously, 
as as Jesus grew, he 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 learned. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's the un- unfolding. There's just a lot of things. Every one of these events, I mean, it's like that Luke synagogue passage we went through tonight. Um, I mean, you could take any one of those tiny events in Scripture and make a three-hour drama of all the details that went into it. In fact, that's the problem. I haven't mentioned it, but one of the books that um, was written a number of years ago was by a Christian art professor at, at Free University of Amsterdam. It's called Modern Art and the Death of a Culture. And it's a Christian artist, professor of art history, actually. And he's dealing with the meaning of paintings and, and the different artistic styles and so on. And he's showing how artists classically had great difficulty in painting the Lord Jesus Christ. And there have been segments of the church that prohibited it. You could not have a picture of Jesus uh, in a church, in some Protestant churches. It would be considered absolutely idolatrous. And the problem was that the artists... Had the, had, the, had the dilemma, as Rupemacher says in his book, he said, how do you paint God? Um, you paint Jesus as a man, and you've distorted it. Because he, he didn't look just, I mean, he was looked like a man, but as an artist, are you going to paint, what? are you going to define in your painting the meaning of your object that you're painting? So it becomes a poster. And that's what the medieval artists try to do. Remember, they, the medieval art always has this big halo thing around it. And it wasn't that they believed necessarily that the people had glow in the dark. It was rather that what they were doing was they were painting posters explaining theologically what's going on. That's why you have these paintings, Mary's this tall and everybody else is this tall. It was their attempt to try to picture meaning. And then you come to the Protestant Reformation and the good thing was that the artists realized, hey, I can paint nature. I can, everything out there is, is God's design. I don't have to sit here and paint theological posters. I can go out in the landscape. And that's the rise of more realism in art. The problem with that was when they started in the realism, now we got a problem. How do we paint Jesus realistically? And, and see, it's like when you know someone, when someone's a stranger to you, and then you get to know them better and better and better, at first, you can only see them as a, like a camera would think of them. You, you, you think of them, you photograph them in your mind. But then as you get to know them better, do you find yourself in the point where you almost can't describe them in visual form because you know them? Well, that's the, that's the dilemma an artist has about Jesus. If we know who he is, we have all this theology of who this man is, then how do you paint that? And you can't. Ultimately, I don't know how we get on that. Um, are there any any other questions on so far on what we've gotten into here? And this is this is very difficult stuff, and it's. Uh, but what I am trying to do is show you points to be careful about uh, when you start talking and thinking about the Trinity, because you really can 
you really want to get at least, you never can comprehend it, but you can at least know what is an error when you see it. Yes. Because in the sequence, all involved in the theology of prayer, I mean, it's not that everybody does this. It's just there's tendencies to do this. If you make Jesus the end point of the prayer, then he becomes the focal point. He becomes the end object of it. Well, if that is so, now how do we have access to Jesus would be the question. If he's holy, he's righteous, and he's the glorious judge, you tend, he tends to take on the role of this unapproachable judge. And in the classic prayer, it's to the Father through the Son. And I can come to the Father because I've got a high priest who makes intercession for me. And therefore, the terror, take, looking at the Father and His righteousness and holiness, how do we have confidence of walking into His presence? I mean, think of Isaiah, what happened. How do you have audacity to walk into the throne of God without a savior, without an intercessor. So, the, the, it's more like the focus is on the Father, but here is my intercessor. I'm, I'm coming to Him through the person of Christ, motivated through the Holy Spirit. But now if you back it up one step, keep the Father out of it, and then you terminate the attention on Christ, now the question is, you either come to Christ as he's a good old boy, friendly guy, and now righteousness and holiness doesn't play a role because now I'm talking to my friend Jesus. Well, what that tends to do, it tends to run in two directions. Either Christ now becomes so much of a friend that he's less than God in his righteousness and holiness, or in the Catholic tradition they so elevated the righteousness and holiness of Christ that now, how do I have uh, access to Him? And then they started looking around for a mediator and they found the mediatrix. So the, uh, the, uh, the incorporation of Mary kind of comes in because she has access to her son. It's the Italian family model, I call it. Um, that, you know, you want to talk to Dad, you talk to Mom first. And she talks to Dad. Oh, I, I don't think they consciously think in those terms. It's ra- and, and, and I'm not saying that's the only reason why Mary was brought into the picture. I think there's, there's dozens of other reasons involved here. All I'm suggesting is that when the simplicity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, is received, and you get too focused on details and forget the, just the simple progression, that things begin to go haywire. And, and if nothing else... If it doesn't lead to Mariolatry, it supports it. And this is not to say that Jesus is, is unapproachable. Clearly, when he was uh, on earth, he was approachable. Uh, clearly, in Stephen's, in Acts 8, uh, 7, when he's about to be killed, he looks up, and the picture in the Greek is so magnificent, Jesus is standing. And the idea is that he's usually sitting. But to receive Stephen, he gets up. I mean, this is the cosmos. You know, the God-man Savior is getting off the throne to receive Stephen. And, and um, the, the people around, around, that's one of the reasons why they get more incensed. 
So, Jesus is approachable. He comes for us. We're not trying to at all diminish that aspect. All we're trying to say is the Father has to be kept into the solidly in place here. Kind of recedes. Yeah, or becomes completely unapproachable. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what happens there by make uh, by overemphasizing ter- that everything terminates in the son, the father just goes away, and, and you, that's not the way the Trinity is. Okay. Um, We don't have any more questions. We'll see you next week.